0: Hello, and welcome to Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to be delving into the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, and I'm glad you could join us today as we seek to study God's Word, to look at the Gospel of John, and really dig in and see what God has for us there. As the words of this text spoke to those that John was inspired to write it to so long ago, it also still speaks God's message to us today. And we wanna find that message together as we study his word. So I thank you for joining us as we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for scripture that you have provided to us that we may study it, that we may delve into it, that we may hear your voice speaking to our hearts through it. But Father, most of all, we thank you for your word become flesh, for Jesus the Christ who died for our sins, taking that penalty, that punishment for us, so that we might have life through him, that we might know you, the life that is the light of the world. Father, you created us and you love us and you have redeemed us. And we thank you. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice as we study your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now in John's Gospel, we have this constant back and forth of, of light and darkness, and that's not accidental. That is part of how John structured his gospel, and it was part of his uh, explaining and his argument against that, that proto-Gnosticism of the day, the philosophies and ideas that had corrupted some of the Christian ideas and some of what Jesus had taught and became the foundation for the heresy that would become Gnosticism. Uh, people get fascinated with it now because frankly, they don't know anything about first century history or scripture. And they'll hear about things like the gospel of Mary or the gospel of Judas or the gospel of Peter, which are all Gnostic gospels. And they'll start, Oh, this is that missing book. Oh, the early church was trying to hide something. Not put... No, it didn't line up with what they knew firsthand to be the teaching of Jesus. It was something else And so the church didn't utilize it it didn't become part of that early canon that early grouping of texts that the church saw as authoritative scripture in addition to the hebrew scriptures so it's not some great power play or some great cover-up it is simply discernment on the part of those that knew jesus as savior and lord and followed him And what's taught in those other things is just not in line with what Jesus taught. It's contrary to it in many ways. And John is challenging that idea because the the early, early thoughts that came together to form Gnosticism were happening in Ephesus. And John was writing to the church in Ephesus to try to straighten it out. And so this gospel... Again, it's not chronological gospel, it's, it's thematic in its organization, but you see this play of darkness and light, and that's a big theme um, in that mode of thought. And John is using that theme that they saw as important to really accentuate the importance of Christ, uh, to, to correct the heresy, if you will. So let's look at the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. Here we go. And it begins with a miracle. It says, Jesus was walking along, or as Jesus was walking along, still in Jerusalem here, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now, you may think that's an odd question, but in the first century world, especially in Jewish thought, it was not. If you suffered some physical malady, if you were impoverished or anything like that, you were seen as being a sinful person because the prevailing thought was, if you're right with God, if you're obedient with God, if God's happy with you, he's going to bless you. And that will become evident. It was kind of assumed that if you were wealthy, as long as you weren't in line with Rome, if you were wealthy, you were blessed by God and you were in good standing with God. But if you had to beg for your existence or you suffered some physical malady, then obviously you sinned and that was God's punishment for your sin. I mean, it's very immediate uh, type of a mentality. And even to the point of you might be punished for Someone up the family line, you know, for your parents' sin, you might be the one punished. Just because the disciples held that thought and were questioning out of that framework does not mean that that is the way things are. The Bible accurately reports inaccurate information. Hear me say that again. The Bible accurately reports inaccurate information. It is a narrative account here of what was asked of Jesus. The thought behind what was being asked is wrong. It's inaccurate. But the Bible relates to us that that was their question. Okay, I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. I'm saying it gives us a clear picture of history. It doesn't gloss it over and make everything look pretty and fall in line. This was a, mm, I was taught there are no dumb questions, but I want to say this was a dumb question. It wasn't, it was a question out of their context, out of what they had seen and been taught. So they're looking at this guy that was born blind. They're like, you know, is, is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? Whose sin caused this? Verse three, it was not because of his sin or his parents' sin, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. So Jesus is turning it on its ear and going, look, this isn't about anybody's sin. This is about God and God being glorified. Well, that's a radical thought for them. So again, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is making it clear it's time for action. There's going to come a time when he isn't there for action. But right now, He's there, and it's time for action. And so he takes action. As we move to verse six, what we find is him saying or it saying, Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Now I'll give you a moment to just say ew, and then I'll explain. What is happening? is Jesus is doing something, well, he's he's doing something that has a lot of significance and a lot of history to it. In the first century, saliva was seen as a curative element. It was used in a lot of medicinal applications. Now, we look at that and we go, well, that is crazy. I mean, there's all sorts of bacteria in the mouth and it's, no, but we have the benefit of a couple thousand years of scientific advancement since then. Um, in their world, that was you know there wasn't much in the way of medicine, and they saw saliva as a as a useful thing. So there's a medicinal aspect to it. There's also a theological aspect to the dirt, to the mud. Uh, what is it in scripture as we read the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis account? What is it that was used to create man. God shaped man out of the mud and breathed life into him. So there's some significance there too. There's a, a physical significance with the saliva. There's a theological significance with dirt, which actually in Hebrew is Adam. Adam. Um, so there's a lot of things at play here symbolically, but Jesus... He spits on the ground, mixes his saliva with the mud, takes the mud, puts it on this blind man's eye, blind since birth. And then verse seven, he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Now, Siloam means sent. And you realize what he's doing. He's sending the man to the pool. Also, Jesus himself was sent by the father. So there's a lot of wordplay there but the pool of Siloam is that pool we just talked in the last chapter about the rituals, the, the feast of, uh, yeah, the festival of shelters there in Jerusalem and that where Jesus said, I am the living water was at the culmination of a ceremony where they were pouring water over the altar as an offering unto God and to acknowledge his deliverance through the wilderness. And, The pool where those waters are drawn for those rituals in the temple during the Feast of Weeks, or uh, excuse me, the Festival of Shelters, not the Feast of Weeks, Um, I can give you one moment to guess which pool that came from. Yes, Siloam. So there's this connection there as well. We just see that tying back in. So he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? You see the, um. well, let me finish the verse or the passage. Some said he was, others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked him, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed and now I can see. What a testimony i did what he told me and now everything's different he was in darkness spiritually and physically and now he's seeing the light physically and he's working on seeing the light spiritually too we'll see that in a moment now i want to back up a little bit so this man sat and begged there was no uh, government assistance slash welfare type of structure, uh, social welfare for those that could not work, those that could not fend for themselves. It was incumbent upon family to care for them. And then they also, at whatever level they could, were expected to go out and beg. And it was considered humiliating, but there was an obligation within the Jewish society to care for those that could not care for themselves. And part of the way that was done was generosity towards those that had to beg. Um, and that was it. If, if you, you know, had a lame hand or you couldn't walk or you were blind or whatever, your job became to go beg. And that was this man's reality and had been for his life. And now everything is different because as the man said, the man they called Jesus made mud, spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam, wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Now, as it picks up in 12, it says, where is he now? They asked, I don't know. He replied, "Hmm. I don't know. He replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them. He put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such a miraculous sign, or do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them so this is even among the pharisees they couldn't agree but you see the groups uh, solidifying you see those that refuse to acknowledge the hand of god at work they knew full well from scriptures from knowing god's word that for a healing like this to take place, a man born blind, given sight, that that is an act of God. And yet they refuse to acknowledge that it is the hand of God moving. That it is in fact, God in the flesh doing this, their hang up is he broke our rule. And I don't recall there ever being a mosaic law against healing on the Sabbath, but somehow they interpreted things to where Jesus was obviously evil because he healed a man blind for life on the Sabbath. Yeah. It's amazing how messed up we can get when we exist only in our own head instead of listening to what God has actually said. And I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but it did. So there you go. So there was this division among the Pharisees, some going, uh, no, he couldn't do a sign like this if he was just you know evil or a sinner, but something's going on here. Verse 17. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, "What is your what's your opinion about this man who healed you?" And the man replied, "I think he must be a prophet. He's going I, I think he's from God. God's doing something here. He still didn't know who Jesus really was, but he's getting there. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. The parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough. Ask him. Translation, they threw him under the bus. They were scared of the religious leaders because they had been warned. If you say Jesus is the Messiah, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. That may not seem like a big deal to you and me. Because, you know, if you're like me, I worship, well, at the church I pastor, but I worship at the church I'm part of. But the reality is there are churches all over the city I'm in. And some of them are even the same type of church that I'm in. So it would not be that big a deal as a member of a congregation. If I were booted out to become affiliated with another congregation, you know, but the Jewish synagogue was a little different. It was the center of Jewish life in the community. And if you were kicked out of the fellowship of the synagogue, you were kicked out of fellowship with the Jewish community. Your neighbors would no longer shop at your business. They would no longer socialize with you. Uh, They would no longer sell you things. You couldn't go to their stall and buy produce or whatever. You were completely ostracized. You were an outsider to your community, your social structure, even family life. Uh, I have encountered even here in the United States in different areas Uh, And in a couple of different cultures, that if you leave the accepted norms of that culture, in some of them, the family will, in essence, have a funeral for you and consider you dead to the rest of the family. I mean, it seems odd, but that's the extent of the social rejection. And that's what happens. That's what it means to be kicked out of the synagogue in the first century world. So this guy's parents were terrified. And so they wouldn't say, but instead they looked at him and goes, Hey, he's old enough to be judged on his own. He's old enough to speak for himself and face the consequences. So ask him, you know, leave us out of it. Deal with him. As the verse ends in verse 23, he's old enough. Ask him, you know, he's sitting there going, thanks mom and dad. Um, Now we get to verse 24. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus is a sinner. The man's reply is this, I don't know whether he is a sinner. The man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. What he's saying is, you know, you're telling me this about Jesus? I don't know. But the only thing I do know is I was blind his whole life. I was blind, and now I can see. That is his testimony, and he's bold about it. Verse 26, but what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, don't you listen? why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too, or his disciples too? Oh boy, that, you know, that's going to set him off. 28. Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. So instead of a rational response, this guy's being very rational. He's going, okay, here are the things I don't know. Here are the things I do know. And they're getting bent out of shape. And so they start to lash out. And if you think about it, that's kind of normal for people. You start pushing the boundaries of their comfort zone. Um, Obviously, there's issues that aren't being dealt with. They tend to lash out. Interestingly enough, in life, people tend to not lash out at the object that has caused them discomfort. They lash out at the objects they feel safe or the people they feel safe lashing out at. Uh, A little free psychology there from somebody that has no credentials in psychology. But, um, you know, that's one of those things. And the Pharisees are doing it. They are lashing out because they feel threatened. Now, as we pick up in verse 30, it says, why, that's very strange, the man replied. So it's still the blind man who could see now. He says, "Why, that's very strange, the man replied. What's he replying to? He's replying to them saying, we don't even know where this man comes from. That's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You realize what just happened. A blind man schooled the Pharisees. You say you don't know where he's from. That's strange because, you know, we look in Scripture and ever since the world began, no one's been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. Hmm. Verse 34, you were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. And at that point, I'm sure he was real broken up about it, or not. Uh, He was already an outcast from society, being born blind. But now he's found Jesus. And he's acknowledging he's from God. This is a God thing. Their response is, you were born a total sinner. Now, how could they judge him as a total sinner? Well, he was blind. Remember, beginning of our discussion today, the whole concept was, if you were born with some malady like blindness, then obviously that being your lot in life, it is a punishment for sin. Your sin or your parents' sin, but you are mired in sin and this is your just punishment for it. Um... So that that's a, a big deal. And they want to categorize him as that and dismiss him and say, hey, look, we are so much more. And they threw him out of the synagogue. Now, as we pick up in the last section of verses for chapter nine, starting in verse 35, it says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and he asked, do you believe in the son of man?" The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. So again, throughout this entire chapter, the blind man who was healed has had a sense of humility. He's been able to say, well, I don't know. And they keep asking him questions. His response is Continue, I don't know. So the man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said and he is speaking to you. Wow, you have seen him. That that has special significance to this man. He goes on, yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him, and they asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Oh, what a contrast. Pointing out that when we think that we're fine, we're probably not. When we realize our need, then we're getting closer to find that the blind man now could see and spiritually understand, whereas those who thought they were spiritually all right were actually blind again. Some Pharisees that were standing by heard him, standing nearby heard him, and they asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, replied Jesus. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Don't fall into that trap of self-righteousness, that trap that says, No, I'm good enough. I know enough. I'm godly enough that you miss out on a relationship with God through Christ because it's really what matters. All the other trappings, all the other activity, all the other doing falls short. Now, if you know Christ as savior and Lord, that should play itself out in life and in how you live and how you act as you live your life to follow him. Do not fall into the trap the Pharisees, not all of them, but some of the Pharisees fell in by looking at their own righteousness, their own adherence to what they thought they should do and thinking that made them right with God. They were so entrenched in that mentality. They didn't see God when he was literally standing in front of them, proclaiming who he was by the works that he did. Don't miss out on seeing Jesus because you yourself got in your own way. Open your eyes and see him. Find forgiveness for your sin. Be set free from the guilt and the penalty of sin and find that right relationship with Jesus, with God. He does bring healing. He does bring forgiveness for sins. He brings eternal life. If you haven't, I encourage you to turn to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the offer of forgiveness for our sins, for living in a, the ability to live in a right relationship with you. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see, to truly see that we may worship you and that we may glorify you with how we live. Father, that we would not become complacent in our own sense of righteousness, our own sense of godliness, but, Lord, that in our hearts we would stay humble before you, Following you with our very lives, trusting you for all of eternity. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.